0: Good morning, everybody. Great to see you in the house today. You glad to be here? All right, man, man, me too. Hey, get your Bible out and uh, let's do what we do. Let's get into God's Word. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one right there at your seat. Uh, Open it up to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13. That's where we're going to be today, 2 Samuel chapter 13. We are still in our series on King David. We're about to wrap it up. Next week, I think, is our last installment in this series. So we're kind of getting later into David's life. And today we're tackling, gosh, probably one of the most challenging, one of the most uh, difficult times in David's life. You know, the Bible doesn't uh, shy away from addressing the dark side and the bad choices of the people in in the scripture, All right. One of the reasons why we know the Bible is true is because it's not revisionist history. I mean it it gives you the good and the bad of its heroes. And we have seen the good and the bad in David. We've seen some really good things. He's taking down Goliath, he's dancing. Uh, as the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem, I mean, those are high points in David's life, but we've also seen uh, some of, of the low points in David's life. We saw last week David and Bathsheba and his uh, moral failure there. And, and, and today we're going to see basically the unraveling of David's family, which is really difficult to watch. But the unraveling of David's family, I'm talking specifically now about his relationship with his son, Absalom. Now, um, let me just give a little, a little warning to parents. You know, we, we, I, I know that this, this story has got a lot of uh, sensitive topics in this. So I'm gonna do my best to navigate my way through this with young ears in the room. Uh, but you need to, when I say, hey, read that section, just go ahead and read that at home, all right? Uh, because this passage really hits home, and it really speaks to us uh, a really powerful message. You know, a couple of uh, months ago, Liz and I went to New York City, and we, we, we went to a Broadway show. And, um, and it's interesting, the show started off and in the opening remarks, the narrator of the show tells you that this story is a tragedy. Meaning that this story is not going to end well, right? This story is not going to have a, a happy ever after ending at the end of the story. It's going to be tragic. And, and if you know anything about tragedies, like Greek tragedies, they, they are, they're a cautionary tale. They're always a tragedy that has a, a warning to it or meaning to it. So that we don't follow in the same steps. Well, I'm just starting off this morning telling you what we're about to read. The story I'm about to tell you is a true story and it is a tragic story. It is a true tragedy at every level. But within it, there is a bright spot of hope. And if you'll stay with me, all right, stay with me through, uh, through, through this story, then you're going to see that hope at the end, and a very powerful lesson for all of us, okay? All right, so Second uh, Samuel chapter 13, uh, we're going to begin at verse 1, and this is the Word of God, amen? So some time passed, David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and David's son Amnon was infatuated with her. Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister Tamar because she was a virgin, but it seemed impossible to do anything to her. And Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, a son of David's brother, Shemaiah. Uh, Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he asked Amnon, why are you, the king's son, so miserable every morning? Won't you tell me? And Amnon replied, I'm in love with Tamar my brother Absalom's sister. Now stop right there for just a minute. So let me kind of catch you up. This is late in King David's life. Uh, At this point, we know that David had at least eight wives that we know of, multiple concubines after that. And he had multiple children. We know at least 20 children. I'll put a link in the notes if you want to kind of nerd out and go deep in the lineage of David and and who belongs to who. I'll put a link in there for you. Suffice it to say about 20 children that we know of. And so uh, you have introduced here some different people. One is Amnon. Amnon was David's firstborn son. He was born when David was king in Hebron in the early days. And so Amnon, being the firstborn son, would be the rightful heir to the throne, right? He was the prince, the crown prince. And then there was a second son named Daniel, which we don't really hear anything about. So most people believe that maybe Daniel had died at childbirth or maybe shortly thereafter. And so because he's not mentioned any other time. And then the third in line was Absalom. Absalom and Tamar were brother, true brother and sister, but they were from uh, they were from different mothers than Amnon, all right? So Amnon and Tamar, they're brother and sister, but they're really half brother, half sister. That's really uh, their relationship. And we're going to find that there's a lot of drama and a lot of trauma that is about to unfold in this family. Now let me just stop right here for just a minute and, and state something very important. God's plan for marriage and family is always one man, one woman for life. That's it. That's God's God's plan. That's God's best. And any time we say, well, you know, I think we've got another plan. I think we can do something a little different than that. And we veer off course from God's plan. To the degree that we veer off course from that plan, there is always going to be ramifications of that. There's always going to be trouble with that. I mean, here's David, he's got eight wives. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're about to read could have totally been avoided if David just stuck with one wife, right? One wife, David, but, but he followed the pagan practices and he thought, well, that would be okay. And most of these wives, they're just kind of political alliances anyway. That are, you know, and so we kind of rationalize and we do the same thing today. We can rationalize, well, it's okay and the kids will be all right and we can do this and that. And what we find is this generational fracturing of the family relationship because we got off track. So I just want to just, just right from the very beginning, lay that plumb line down. God's plan for the family is always a man and woman in covenant relationship together for life. And that's in the context where we raise children that grow to fear and love the Lord, okay? But that's not what happened here. And it's a very chaotic family. And so you have Absalom's obsession here. Absalom said that he was in love with Tamar, right? He he wasn't in love with her. He was in lust with her is really what was going on. I mean, he he was attracted to her. He had this selfish desire for her, um, but it wasn't love. And so this advisor, Jonadab, Who's, who's just a bad dude. I mean, Jonadab, you know, whenever we read his name, we all should go boo, right, when we read him, because he's just a bad guy. He's a snake in the grass. He's always playing both sides of the fence, and he's always giving bad, evil advice. And so he comes up to Amnon. He's like, hey, man, what's wrong with you? You're like making yourself sick. You're losing away. You're wasting away. What's wrong with you? And he goes, I'm just so in love. And he's like, man, you're the crown prince. You can have whatever you want. And so he gives him this evil plan to take Tamar for himself. In chapter 13, and I'm not going to read it, you read it on your own, is a detailed description of what happened. And it's disturbing. And it's evil. And suffice it to say, Amnon assaults Tamar and then rejects her, utterly shaming her. In fact, at the end of chapter 13, she is going around, she's, she's torn her robes in grief. She's put dust on her head. She's wailing out because of her shame and her guilt and, and her assault and, and all, that is, all the trauma that has happened to her, not at her, uh, for, uh, any fault of her own. It's a very tragic, tragic story. And, you know, as I read that I, and think about it, the truth is that there's some of you in a crowd this size that have faced a very similar situation. I wish I could say that, that assault like this only happened in Old Testament times, but that's not true. That happens now. That happens today. That happens all the time. And just from a percentage standpoint, a high percentage of women have carried Tamar's burden and pain. And I just want to stop for a moment and just say if that's you I want you to know that as a church family we love you and we want this place to be a place of reconciliation and a place of healing and a place of hope because your past does not define you or what happened to you doesn't define you Jesus defines you and we can find hope and healing in Jesus so here is uh, uh, Amnon's assault of Tamar and uh, how did people respond to this? Well, look at verse 21. Just run your finger down to verse 21. When King David heard about all these things, he was furious. Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, neither good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he disgraced his sister Tamar. I want you to notice here that David is angry about it. The word gets back to dad, right? And dad is furious. But I want you to notice that he doesn't do anything. Now, just to make a little mental note, put a pin in that, because later on, we're going to have to come back to this and talk about this more. But David does not do anything. In effect, David kind of looks the other way. Now, you go, wait a minute. That just kind of blows my mind. I thought David was supposed to be this great guy. And now he's looking the other way. How could he do that? And, and to answer that, really, we're just speculating. We don't really know. The text doesn't really tell us. Some say that maybe David didn't respond to Amnon and didn't address it and confront him over it because he he thought, well, you know what? I don't really have the moral high ground here. I basically did the same thing with Bathsheba just the previous chapter, you know, and I mean, who am I? I can't really confront him if I've done the same thing, And, and so he just doesn't do it. I know some parents go, well, I can't really address this with my kids because, you know, after all, you know, when I was in high school or when I was in college, I just, you know, so who am I to say, you know, and and so it just perpetuates the problem. And so maybe that was it. Another people, another group speculate that maybe David didn't do it because he was concerned about the legacy of the throne. After all, Amnon was the heir to the throne. He didn't want to, he didn't want to ruffle the feathers. He didn't want to make waves. I mean, this guy was supposed to succeed him. And now all that was going to be thrown off. Whatever the case may be, David turns the other way. He does not address this issue, which we're going to find later becomes a chronic pattern for David. But Absalom, who was Tamar's brother, he's not going to look the other way. He's not going to just sit by while this offense goes down. He sits on it for two years For two years, he lets his anger churn within him. For two years, he allows the resentment to grow. And for two years, he begins to plot and to plan how he is going to get back against Amnon. And we see his plan come to fruition down in verse 28. Uh, Absalom, two years later, throws a big party. Everybody's there. He invites all the king's sons to come, all the royal family. They're having this big celebration. And during the celebration, he gives orders to his men. Look down at verse 28. He said, now Absalom commanded his young men, watch Amnon until he is in good mood from the wine. When I order you to strike Amnon, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Am I not the one who commanded you? Be strong and violent. So Absalom... Uh, Absalom's young men did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the rest of the king's sons got up and each fled on his own mule. In other words, uh, he said, "Guys, when he when he gets a little tipsy, uh, I want you to take him out." And it was a hit. It was a mob hit. And Amnon is murdered. And of course, all the other sons—they're scattering. Right? They're afraid they're going to be next. Maybe this is Absalom like clearing everybody out so that he can take the throne. We don't really know. Some people say this was politically motivated. The text seemed to seem that it was was directly related to the hate that he had because of the offense of Tamar. Nevertheless, it is a ruthless, ruthless response. And what happened then, we'll just look at it. Look at verse 37. So Absalom fled and went to, look at verse 37. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, king of Geshur. That is his mother's uh, father up in the Galilee. And David mourned for his son every day. Probably mourning over Amnon, the one that was murdered. And after Absalom had fled to Geshur, had been there three years, King David longed for Absalom For David had finished grieving over Amnon's death. So now it's three years in banishment, two years that he was plotting this thing. So now we're into five years after the uh, offense of Tamar, five years, and this thing is still unresolved, right? Now he's got one son that's dead. He's got one son that's away, kind of banished. Uh, David still hasn't addressed the issue. David still hasn't talked about it. He still feels bad about it, but he's not addressed anything. It's like the elephant in the room. Everybody knows what's going on. Nobody wants to talk about it. And and yet he wants to reconcile with his son who's away, and maybe because now he's the next in line to the throne, but he knows what Absalom is capable of. He knows what Absalom can do, and I think David is kind of keeping his arms length because he doesn't really trust him. And so they're kind of at a stalemate. And this is when Joab comes in. Joab was the King David's military commander. And he's like, listen, we got to resolve this problem, okay? You, you guys are separated. Everything's in a lot of tension here. Nothing's getting resolved. It's been five years. We've we got to resolve this thing. And so Joab kind of takes an unconventional approach. All right, so he basically goes to a woman from Tekoa, called a wise woman, this is in chapter 14, a wise woman from Tekoa, and asks her to play a part, basically like to be an actress. And to come to David and pretend to have this problem with her family, and then he's going to, he, hopefully that's going to motivate David to action. So this woman comes to King David, and she is wearing mourning clothes, and she spins this tale. She says, I, I'm a widow. And, and I only had two sons and my two sons were in the field and they argued and there was no one there to separate them and one son killed the other son and so and then he fled away and now all my village is going to try to kill him because of the murder he's committed and then I'll be left with no one and no one to take care of me and no one to, uh, to, to carry on my lineage. And, and what shall I do? And so she begs the king to have mercy on this one son who committed this heinous act and to bring him back safely. And so, after some listening to this, David says, I promise that no one will harm your son. I will bring him back so that you at least have one son left uh, to take care of you and, to, and that your family line will not stop. And then she flips the script. On David, all right? This is a lot like when Nathan said, you know, gave this story to him earlier, like with his, his sin with Bathsheba. Very similar kind of thing. He, she flips the script, and then she says to him, she said, the king has not brought back his own banished one. Like, you're, you're so quick to forgive my son, but you won't forgive your son. You're quick to restore my son, but you won't restore your son. And David is kind of set back. And then he goes, is Joab, did Joab been talking to you? <laughs> she goes, yeah, he's been talking to me. He goes, well, okay. So, so David does ask, so send basically for Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. So he comes back. Now it's been five years, right? He comes back. Actually, five years plus three. He's been out there for three. So now we're into eight years. He finally comes back. They're in the same city together. Absalom and David, but they don't speak. They're across town from each other, but they have no conversation. They do not meet. It is silent and the tension still between them is at a fever pitch. Chapter 15 begins, we, it opens up with, with Absalom at the city gate wooing the men of Israel to come to him. Boy, if you had a leader like me, things would change around here. If you had someone like me, you could really get things done. If you had a leader like me, we, we wouldn't be in the problems we're having. And he starts to woo the men of Israel with promises that if he will follow him and not his father, King David, that things could really happen. And, and he begins to stir up a coup that literally in the chapters that follow, sends David running for his life out of the palace, And a battle begins to ensue between Absalom and his men and David and his men. And it goes back and forth. And finally, at the end uh, of, of chapter 18 or so, you have David's men capturing Absalom and killing Absalom. And David is reinstated as the king. And in one sense, it's a great victory for David. But yet, his heart is broken now because he has two sons that are dead. Like I said, it's a tragedy. It's a true story, but it is tragic. No one wins in this story. No one wins. And for some of you, this story may hit a little close to home. Because for some of you, you know what it's like to have anger toward a parent that is unresolved. Or to, to bear an offense that has happened to you a long time ago that's still not healed. For some of you, you know what it's like to be estranged from a son or a daughter or to have to sit back and watch their choices leading them down a very self-destructive road. You know what that's like. The Broadway play that we went to ended its tragic tale with a song And the song said, we sing this song, this tragic tale, over and over and over again, hoping that it will end differently. And there are a lot of people that live their lives that way. They're constantly looking in the past. They're constantly harboring resentment and unforgiveness. They're constantly uh, in a state of, of, of tension within their family. They're not addressing the elephant in the room. They're doing all of these things, and yet they hope someday it will just go away. Or that it will end differently, but it never does. And you pass that kind of pattern on to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So it's a tragic tale. But it's here for us. In fact, Romans 15, 4 says, for whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through encouragement from the scripture. In other words, God put this story in the Bible for a reason and it's to encourage us and to help us not do the same thing. See, we don't have to, uh, we don't have to learn from our own mistakes. We can learn from somebody else's mistakes, right? And we can learn from David's mistakes, And we can look at this and go, man, this is messed up. And go, yeah, but you know what? We can learn from this lesson not to do the same things. So what do we learn from this story of David and Absalom? Let me give you you three things. Here's the first thing. Jot this down. Beware of resentment. Choose forgiveness. Beware of resentment. Choose forgiveness. There are multiple offenses in this story. You have, of course, Amnon against Tamar. You have Absalom against Amnon. You have uh, Absalom against David, David against Absalom, maybe even Joab against David. But you got got multiple layers, multiple levels of offenses. And it just is a reminder to us that life is like that. That we, we can't get through life without being offended, without being wounded, without being betrayed, without being disappointed, without being hurt. We can't get through life without that. That is the human condition. We are sinful people living in a sinful world and we're going to face trouble. Jesus said in this world you will have trouble. And when those kinds of offenses come to us, we really have one of two options. We can either take those offenses in and let them turn and turn and harden into our hearts. And the offense can turn to anger, that can turn to resentment, that can return to bitterness and, and to retaliation. Or we can choose a different path. We can choose a path of forgiveness. Now, listen, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, 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 see, I got a problem with that, preacher, because it's not okay what happened to me. And here's what I want you to understand. Forgiveness is not saying what happened to you is okay. It was not okay. But forgiveness is simply making the decision that I'm not going to allow this offense to continue to control me and define me any longer. I'm not going to carry this around any longer. I'm going to entrust it to God. I'm going to give it to God. And I'm going to move forward with my life. That's what forgiveness is. It's releasing it to God who is just and right and will do what is just and right. And forgiveness is really the thread that runs all the way through the Bible. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole book is about forgiveness. The whole thread is, a, is forgiveness. And we need it. We, we need to receive forgiveness. Anybody in here need to receive forgiveness from anything? Uh, yeah, that would be all of us. All right, uh, just nod at me. Yeah, we all need to receive forgiveness. And guess what? We also all need to what? Forgive. We need to extend forgiveness. Colossians 3, verse 13 says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If if any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I can't help but think how this story could have played out differently if uh, somebody in this story had asked for forgiveness. Just think of Amnon had asked for forgiveness. You know, just think of... Just if Absalom had said, Please forgive me. If David had said, If somebody would have asked for forgiveness, this thing could have have played out completely differently. Beware of resentment, choose forgiveness. Here's the second thing beware of passivity, act wisely. Beware of passivity, act wisely. The recurring theme throughout this whole story is David's refusal to act. He was grieved. He was upset. He didn't like what was happening, but he did nothing. He did nothing. In many ways, David is a lot like the prophet Eli in the Old Testament. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, you have Eli, who was a prophet at Shiloh, and he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were also priests, but they were wicked dudes. They were bad guys. I mean, they offended people. They were immoral. They were ungodly in every possible way, and they were just running rampant. And, and Eli would come to them and he would say, sons, why do you do this? I kind of get my little Jewish thing. Son, hey, why do you do this to, to us? You know, and, and, and this is what Eli, would. He goes, I, I, he feels so bad that I have such crazy boys. Sons, why? But he never disciplined. He never drew a line. He never confronted Never. And what ends up happening is again another tragic tale because God held Eli responsible. Uh, You can't miss that. God held the dad responsible because of his failure to act. And as a result, both his sons uh, suffered divine punishment. He did and the whole nation did. And so you, you get a glimpse of this, even with David, that David is so uh, passive. I mean, he feels deeply about these things, but he doesn't ever act. He doesn't ever discipline. He doesn't ever confront. He doesn't have the hard conversations. And as a result of that, David's passive and everyone pays. The whole family is spinning out because of David's passivity. I mean, think about it. What, what a great, decisive leader on the battlefield, right? I mean, this is David the conquering warrior, and yet he is checked out at home. And I've seen this many, many times over the years. Uh, A guy is just so good at his work, he's just killing it at work. He's such a good leader, and yet when he gets home, he just doesn't engage, doesn't engage. Hopes that it will go away, pacifies his children, panders to his kids, never holds them to account, never confronts them on their issues ever. Maybe because, well, you know, I, I did the same thing when I was their age or, well, you know, I feel guilty because we got joint custody and I don't wanna always be that heavy. So I'm just gonna give, 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 give and hope everything works out and I feel better about it. But everyone is paying the price. Doing nothing never solves anything that'd make a great bumper sticker, all right? Doing nothing never solves anything. And I know what you're probably thinking, well, Craig, I don't really know what to do. And that's legitimate. I mean, a lot of times we get into situations and it's really sticky and it's complicated. We don't really know what to do, right? We don't really, I, I don't know, half the time I don't know what, I, what to do either. But, but listen, there are some things you can do. Number one, you can pray about it. And I mean, really pray about it. People go, oh, yeah, I pray about it every day. Well, do you really? I mean, are you on your knees in prayer? Are you staying hours in prayer? Are you wetting your, your, your pillow at night with prayer? Are, are you doing that? Here's the interesting thing. In this whole story, you never see David one time pray. Not one time. You never see David ask for a godly counsel to come to him and instruct him. It's like he checks out completely. So you can pray about this earnestly, fervently, hours on your knees, asking God. James 1 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, God will give it to him. God will give you the wisdom if you ask him. Number two, seek out wise counsel. Go to a a pastor, go to a Christian counselor, go to godly friends. Say, hey, what do I need to do? What would you do in this situation? Pray together with them. Ask God for clarity, for discernment, for wisdom, to know what's really going on in that person's life. And then make a plan and act. Just act. Because a failure to act is the reason why David's family spun out the way that it did. The last lesson here is just beware of retaliation and pursue reconciliation. Beware of retaliation, pursue reconciliation. Absalom's rebellion in. Uh, the later chapters is really about retaliation right he wanted his dad to hurt he wanted to him to pay back he, he wanted he wanted David to feel what he felt and be rejected like he felt rejected and to experience pain like he felt and there's something in us many times when we are when we're in a conflict uh, many times even in our own family where we want that person to pay we want them to feel it and there's There's probably a moment where retaliation feels good. Yeah, see, now you know how I feel. But it never heals anything. It only causes more pain, more trouble, more trauma, more separation. Instead of taking all that energy into retaliation, channel that energy toward reconciliation. How can we reconcile? How can we put the pieces back together? After all, that's what God did for us. You know, the first step in reconciliation is the hardest step, right? The first step is always the hardest step because we're like, I'm not gonna go to them. They're gonna come to me. I mean, after all, they're the ones that did it. I didn't do anything. I was perfect in this situation. At least in the way I see it. But the first step is your step. Whenever I meet with couples that are at each other, I tell them both the same thing. The first step is yours. The first step for reconciliation is yours. And if you're waiting for somebody else to take it, then you'll never get there. So pursue reconciliation, not retaliation. That's what the Lord did for us. In fact, embedded, I told you there was a little glimmer of hope in this story, right? It's a pretty dark story, right? But there's this little glimmer of hope, and I want, to, I want to point it out to you in verse 14. Chapter 14, verse 14. There's a little glimmer of the gospel in there. Remember the widow uh, or the woman from Tekoa that comes to tell this tale? She had these two sons that were in the field. One killed the other. The other fled. And she's begging uh, King David to bring her wayward son home. And he goes, I promise I will. And then she flips the script. Why aren't you bringing your son home? Remember that? That that's, that's where we are in the story. And then she says something that ought to be under lined in every Bible. 2 Samuel 14, 14. We will certainly die and be like water poured out on the ground, which can't be recovered. But God would not take away a life. He would devise plans so that the one banished from him does not remain banished. She said that Life is like a glass of water. And when we die, it's like our water is poured out on the ground. We can't recover it, right? I mean, it's, it's gone. When you die, any opportunity you have to reconcile, to forgive, to seek peace is gone. You've lived your life and it's over. It cannot be recovered. And so as you live the life that you have and you choose to stay passive or you choose to not forgive or you choose to Hold on to that resentment. At some point, it's over. There is no more opportunity left to reconcile. All you have left is an empty life full of regret. But it doesn't have to be that way. While you still have life, you have opportunity. And she said, God doesn't do that. God makes a plan to recover his wayward one. And that plan had a name. And that name was Jesus. And Jesus came to reconcile us who were far from God, us who had offended God, us who were wayward, us who were wicked, us who had gone our own way. He pursued us through the person of Jesus. And when Jesus came to that last supper in this next week, we're gonna be talking about that, to that last supper, he took up a cup and he said, this cup is my blood poured out for you, poured out. Not, not a life poured out on the ground, his blood poured out for you, Why? so that you could be forgiven. You could be reconciled. You could be right with God. When Jesus was pouring out his life, he was pouring out hope into you and to me that we can change, that relationships can be restored. So listen, while you have opportunity, seek forgiveness. Pursue reconciliation. Act wisely. Don't make the same mistakes, David did. But you bow your heads with me for just a minute. Maybe you're here today, and you realize that you're not right with God. You, there cannot be any reconciliation between you and another person because you haven't yet been reconciled between you and God. And the Bible tells us that you were created to know Him and to love Him and to walk with Him in a deep and personal way, but the Bible also tells us the truth that we have sinned against God. We have gone our own way. We have lost our way. God said, go right, and we went a hard left. We, We pursued our own thoughts, our own desires, and it has led us far, far away from God. And the Bible says our sins have separated us from God. And when we were lost... And at odds with God, an enemy of God, God sent his only son, Jesus, to us. And Jesus came to reveal the Father to us, but also to go to a cross. And on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. All your sin was put on the back of innocent Jesus, and he died in your place. That's how much God loves you. That was a price he was willing to pay for you. The Bible says he was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead conquering sin and death in the grave, and he offers you forgiveness and a new start. Reconciliation with God, peace with God by faith, if you trust him. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you come to give him your life? Maybe you're here today and you don't know for sure. You can know. You can know for sure right now that you're right with God. You can know for sure if you die, you're going to heaven. You can know for sure that the Christ lives within you. I'm going to just lead you in a simple prayer of faith. And if you're here today, you say, Pastor Gray, I'm not sure, but I want to be sure. I don't think I'm right with God, but I want to be right with God. Then I want you just to simply lift up your hand. Every head's bowed, nobody looking around, just me. Just lift up your hand. I'm not going to call you out in any way, but I'll see that hand and I'll pray for you, okay? So right now, if you want to receive if you want to be right with God, you want to be reconciled to God who pursues you, who made a plan to pursue you and to bring you back to him, then so just lift up your hand right now. Pastor, pray for me. I need Christ in my life. Lift up your hand. Lift it up. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thank you. Anybody else? Pastor, I need Christ. Lift up your hand. Okay, put your hands down. Just pray with me right where you are. Dear Lord. I know I've sinned against you. I've gone my own way. But I believe Jesus died on a cross for me. I believe he rose again from the dead. And so I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Please wash me clean. Please make me new. I turn to follow you now as a leader of my life, thank you for loving me. Lord, I thank you for your word today. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And Lord, I pray for everyone here in this room that's walking through tension in the family, tension with, with those that have hurt them, offended them, maybe a wayward son or daughter, maybe a a hurting parent. Lord, I pray that your word today would bring encouragement. Lord, I pray for reconciliation. I pray for forgiveness. I pray for wise actions. Lord, I pray that you would bring hope and peace in every home and that we would keep our eyes on you, Jesus. You're the author and perfecter of our faith, you're the one that helps us and leads us. So Lord Jesus, help us to know what to do. To walk in reconciliation and to walk in peace with everyone, especially those in our family. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.